You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Blogging Heads Nation, and welcome to your special end of the year. What, me worry? Strasburg. I'm Heather Hurlbert. I run the New Models of Policy Change Initiative at New America. I'm a columnist at the Daily Intelligencer at New York Magazine. And what the heck, America? I'm Daniel Dresner. I have a lot of affiliations that I'm sure would impress you, but really, who cares at this point? Does it matter? You know, yeah, I teach at the Fletcher School. Yeah, I write for the Washington Post. Does anything really matter now? Because we're in that kind of mode. Um, so, Heather, we should we should preface this by saying I believe that we uh, arranged for this uh, year-end uh, wrap-up earlier in the week, and nothing has happened in the interim, so we don't have to worry. It's been really calm and smooth sailing. Yeah, yeah. It's really this week has given me a lot of time to reflect in a serene way <laughs> about sort of all the lessons that we learned from 2018. And, um, you know, as, as Blake Hounsel said on Twitter the other day, 2018 was really about the people we met along the way. <laughs> and we met quite a, people, uh, quite a few people along the way. I'm sorry. I, Only I, to say goodbye to them again in uh, record short amounts of time. Like, who could who could believe that in this same calendar year, Tillerson was our secretary of state? Remember him? No, actually, this is I, I mean, this has been talked about before. And I don't know if you have this experience, but truthfully, my ability to mem to remember events prior to 96 hours ago, hell, 48 hours ago. <laughs> has has sharply deteriorated during the Trump administration. And yeah, asking me to remember something like way back in 2018, you know, in January or February, I, you know, um, I believe I went to the Munich Security Forum this year, but I don't remember what happened. And I don't remember if anything important happened, frankly. Oh, that's a good point. I went to India in January or was it February? And um, Nadia Shadlow was still a deputy national security advisor. And she, she well, to be fair, at the end of the year, Nadia published an article in Texas National Security Review where she's still presenting the president <laughs> as a conservative realist. So <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't take any of this seriously anymore. I apologize. Keep going. I, I can't. I'm sorry. How, how the hell are we supposed to take the national security strategy seriously in the wake of Jim Mattis's resignation? Uh, and in no small part due to a resignation letter in which he articulated the beliefs, I believe, of the national security strategy and then saying you need to find someone who agrees with you more than apparently you agree with your own national security strategy. So I want to pause and, and two things about that letter that were that were really remarkable. And, you know, I, I said this in a, a column that I somehow wrote last night in between my kid having freakouts about slavery in the U.S. Constitution. Um, and I got to tell you, working on both of those things at once, that was really a deep level of existential despair. But you know how I think many of us have had this experience where there's a person or entity that we're just dying to write a letter to where we tell them what we really think of them. And maybe in a kind of unhealthy way, you go around for weeks or even months and in a corner of your brain, you have that letter written. And every now and then you kind of come across a freight. Am I the only person who's obsessive and weird enough that I would write letters? No, I'm not. No, no, no. This is how bad you are. I write drafts of those letters. I never send them. But there have been times where if I'm dealing with someone that I just really want to tell off um, – in a professional way, I will sometimes compose an email with the idea that I will never send it, but the act of writing it makes me feel better. Dude, you just invited the whole world to hack your emails, so I hope your password, I hope you have dual factor. I, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. Yeah. So anyway, this the Mattis letter, on the one hand, it was 
clearly something that he had pondered for a long time. On the other hand, it was written in a huge hurry, as a colleague of mine who's a PR professional pointed out, there's punctuation errors, there's missing articles, there's inconsistencies. I mean, you sort of, I don't know that anyone in the world still works this way, but I kind of imagine Matt is sitting there and dictating it to someone. Well, the best part, I mean, you want to talk about, you know, Mattis being old school. My favorite detail of all this was that apparently after he resigned, he went back to the Pentagon and then ordered apparently that 50 hard copies of the letter be distributed to the Pentagon, you know, which is the largest building in the world. And last I heard has email. That That's that's a nice but but actually, I, I think um, um those, those copies are going to be valuable sort of, Ooh, of souvenirs of this era. So you could think of it as he was ensuring the... He was creating relics. He was creating... Yeah, there you go. It's very, very medieval. I like that. I like that. I no, mean, that's, really, but, that's really old school. Yeah. But I agree with you that it was interesting. I mean, it, even in, in Twitter in real time, as the letter came out, it was striking to me that the foreign policy people read this and immediately understood what Mattis was trying to say, even though, as you say, there, I, I agree that there was the occasional piece of sloppiness in the letter, whereas the professional writers and editors were all like, I don't know, what is he really trying to say here? It's not clear to me. <laughs> um, but I, I, I suspect you're correct that clearly he'd been thinking about it for quite some time, um, but only pulled the trigger, you know, yesterday. Although my understanding is he had the letter with him when he went to the White House to talk to Trump in the afternoon. You know, there was a great piece of gossip going around the uh, Pentagon press corps earlier in the week, which I had totally discounted, which shows you what I know, uh, that Mattis was so fed up with Trump that if Trump didn't go visit the troops over Christmas, Mattis was going to quit, which I thought, well, nobody thinks Trump is going to go visit the troops over Christmas. So that if that's true, then that's Mattis winding everybody up that he's going to quit. So Although what's striking to me is that even last month, I, I remember talking to someone within Mattis's office who made it clear to me that Mattis was staying until the end, yes. that that he viewed himself. What is striking is, is even in the last, you know, six weeks, I would say, the, the transformation, because even six weeks ago, and there, there have been reports about Mattis losing influence and Trump being alienated from Mattis for, hell, a year now at least. Um, but as recently as six weeks ago, you know, people who are high ranking in his office told me, look, he sees this job as, you know, he's the bulwark against the president doing something, you know, uh, slightly crazy, and therefore he's going to stay as long as humanly possible. It is telling that six weeks later, that's apparently the the as long as humanly possible part. So, Dan, you are reminding me of a major strategic theme and overarching question, which was occupying my mind less than 24 hours ago, um, which is why the question of why the president felt it necessary to make these moves on Syria and Afghanistan right now. And I, you know, I was really struck before Mattis yesterday. The moment that most struck me was um, Ed Luce of the Financial Times writing a tweet and Frank Fukuyama of End of History and, and other light novels fame um, retweeting it, saying basically the only reason this plus the lifting of Treasury of sanctions on several large Russian companies this week can be happening has to be a sort of Trump outreach to Moscow, given what's going on on the political side. And I really looked at that and I thought, you know, I've worked so hard for two years sort of to really err on the opposite side of conspiracy theorying everything back to Russia. 
And, and in part, I do that. I mean, in part, I do that because just generally, I think people mostly are not competent enough to carry out big conspiracy theories. Right. Always no. favoring competence over malevolence. That's my Yes. That's but my also, let's just be honest, because subscribing to conspiracy theories is a really quick way to get yourself thrown out of the foreign policy establishment. Yes. So so I do like in order to sort of guard my status, I, I zealously stay away from it. And so I look at this and I was like, well, if Ed Luce and Frank Fukuyama are all in on this now, you know, does does that mean we're all conspiracy theorists now? How do we why the hell why why was it so important to do Syria right this week? Why is it so important to announce Afghan cutting the troops in half in Afghanistan by the end of the year? There's really no it's not like you're going to take those 10,000 troops between the two places and send them straight to the southern border. Why would you do that? Okay, so I, I would say two things on this. The first is on the conspiracy theory part, I, I, and I've said this before, the worst aspect of this administration by far is that as someone who has been an avowed sort of, you know, rejection of conspiracy theories that, that go all the way back to like the 2000 election. I think that's the first time I remember, you know, these things uh, mushrooming in terms of our political conversation. Um, I can't reject these. I don't think I don't think I don't think your argument is I, I don't think the, the Ed Luce Frank Fukuyama argument is correct. You know, if, if you know, the preponderance of evidence to me suggests, no, this is not the case. But on the other hand, you know, who the hell knows at this point? I mean, you know, two years ago, no, not two years ago, two and a half years ago, maybe three years ago, the idea that this, you know, if, if I told you all the things that have that have actually come to light, um, you know, it would have been it would have been preposterous. That said, I still I still have my doubts, actually, that that Trump is doing these things because he is somehow in Putin's pocket. I, I tend to think there are two other explanations that are a little more I think have more validity. Uh, well, three. One is to be fair to Trump. He has wanted to get troops out for a long time. So this is not something new. He's talked about, you know, he he was rolled by his advisors on Afghanistan um, in 2017. And that in some ways, that was the, the sort of big meeting that defines the sort of cleavages within the administration where they had the meeting in the tank in the Pentagon where, you know, essentially Cohn and Mattis and, and the rest of them all said, look, this is why we should do all these things. And Trump is like, no, we're getting screwed over. Um, and he also got rolled on Syria earlier this year. And, you know, He's the president of the United States, and there are times where I think if he continues to get rolled on this stuff, he eventually lashes out, and he lashes out in you know unpredictable ways. So that that's thing one. Um, thing two is that you know he clearly does somehow believe that some accommodation could be had with Putin. Although truthfully, at this point, you have to wonder, even if he were actually in control of the executive branch, if if the Russians would buy any of this, because you know the the degree of volatility in, in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, it's been all over the map. I think the real reason he did this, I mean, it, it, there was an associated press report that said that the conversation with Erdogan last week was what sort of triggered it. But I think the deeper reason, and I've argued about this, I've argued that this this week, is that essentially Donald Trump, as the head of the executive branch, has run into the very hard limits of what he can do. Yeah. And so on in this, this entire month has been an exercise in what Trump can't do. He can't browbeat the Fed into listening to him. He can't get, you know, funding for the wall from Congress, although he's, you know, going to try his damnedest on that, but I don't think it's going to happen. You know, he's facing a, a 2019 where he's going to be hemmed in 
by a Democratic House. Oh, and by the way, the courts have started to come in and blow apart some of his conspiracy theories about, let's say, Michael Flynn and also some of his immigration orders. So I, I think this is a situation where foreign policy remains in some ways the last refuge for a president who is hamstrung by other institutions in the United, you know, in, in the federal government. And this is the one area where he still can do stuff. Yeah, I've been really fascinated. Um, a, quite a bit of the coverage of it has um, emphasized his feelings about keeping his campaign promises. And, um, you know, how can I put this? Um, I'm, a, I'm a person of a, of a certain cynicism, as, as viewers know. And um, I don't I don't often um, associate a touching literalness about keeping one's campaign promises with American politics. But it does. I, I think so reporters have said that enough times that there's clearly something in how Trump and his his close cohort have been talking about it off the record. And I do also then think there's kind of the piece of what is the thing that I can give to my base that shows I am still, you know, still Donald from the block, keeping it real. Although this so this is where so two things on this. The first, I, I think you're I think you're you're correct on the political side of things, which is, you know, I, this is where, again, it's it's not exactly a conspiracy theory, but you can argue that if Donald Trump is trying to maintain his survival and is legitimately fearing impeachment and potentially removal from office, he needs 40 uh, or he needs 37 Republican senators in, to vote in lockstep with him, no matter what evidence comes to light. Um, and the strategy he's pursued on this for the past two years has been to appease his base. Um so, I mean, this is why I think he's doing stuff on the wall. The interesting question, and this is, you know, this is finally we can talk about it a little bit more in terms of, of foreign policy, is I don't know whether Syria and Afghanistan, his moves there, appease his base. I don't know. I mean, I, th this is where things honestly, I think, get legitimately complicated. Now, you know, we've seen this sort of discourse where there is no doubt the sort of Rand Paul wing of, of Republicans um, and, you know, a similar mirror, you know, group on on the left that I think, you know, is actually really happy about these decisions um, on Syria and Afghanistan. You know, even while they acknowledge that the process has been screwed up, they don't want. They think the U.S. has has too large a military footprint elsewhere. They want U.S. troops to come home. They're perfectly happy about that. But there is also the sort of neoconservative, you know, or Jacksonian wing, however you want to put it, the sort of Tom Cotton, Lindsey Graham of the world that clearly are viscerally opposed to this. Um, and and think it's a, a a serious mistake. And I have to admit, this is where the cynic in me thinks none of this matters with respect to on foreign policy to his base. I don't think his base cares one way or the other about Syria or Afghanistan because I don't think it rises to the same level that the wall or you know immigration or you know the sort of other identity issues that Trump likes to play uh, uh, you know likes to to engage in uh, matter in the same well, way. If I were him, I would say a win is a win is a win. Right. Um, the other, I mean, the other thing that is fascinating about this is that two of the people who in the past have been presumed, at least two and maybe more that I have missed in the insanity, um, at least two of the men who were presumed to be top contenders to, to replace Mattis were out very publicly opposing the Syria right. Afghanistan moves, which is to say Cotton and um, general commentator Jack Keane. So, um, yeah. Can I ask you what? So you're in you're in D.C. I'm I'm far removed from it, or you know. So you might have the skinny on this. And this is an insane. You know, I, I'm actually surprised there hasn't been more speculation on this. Is it possible that Trump names Rand Paul Secretary of Defense? 
why would Trump do that? I don't, I mean. The, the reason I say that is that if the way Trump is tacking right now, you know, it is consistent with what Rand Paul believes in. Um, you know, Rand Paul as a senator would presumably have a slightly easier um, segue through or, or confirmation process. And also, and I mean this seriously, who the hell else is going to take the job at this point? Well, so the thing is, Rand Paul is not necessarily, not particularly well liked by his peers. Yes, but that's true. I think, but I mean, it has been, how can I put this? It has been demonstrated before that, that members of Congress will very happily confirm a colleague they don't like to a job elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is certainly true that it, Paul's seat is one of the ones that you have less risk of, um, of losing to a, to a Democrat. Um, but I can't believe that Trump would really get along with him very well either, honestly. Well, Trump's not going to get along with anyone. I mean, this is, you know, I mean, already there's been reports in the press that he's ticked off at Mick Mulvaney because the video surfaced of Mulvaney saying that Trump is a terrible human being. And it's possible, by the way, I, 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 I mean, to, I don't mean to be specific to Paul. I guess my honest question is, is that given the way that Mattis stepped down, who on the Republican side of things is going to agree to be the secretary of defense? Well, it is it's interesting that you say that because just literally as I was like running around to tape this episode, one of my new America colleagues stopped me and said, what's this I hear about David Petraeus being interested in the job? <laughs> oh, God, <no>. oh, my. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. OK, keep so, going. I don't know the truth of this rumor. Um, but I think you can use Petraeus as a stand-in for a certain class of individuals whose um, ambitions run very, very deep. That is fair. But there's a separate category, which I think also fits into this, which is I think the only pool that Trump is going to be able to dip into on this is going to be you know, that that meets the necessary qualifications for if you exclude everything like like absent everything else, I suppose Petraeus, the secretary of defense, is not the worst choice. Um, but he's he's only going to be able to pick people who I mean, in some ways, it's the John Bolton thing. It, it, he only will be able to pick people who would not get hired in another administration, Republican or Democrat. Well, there's also the current deputy, um, you know, who came who came to um, the Pentagon from Boeing and had a very easy confirmation. So, and, you know, is probably not going to refuse to be elevated. Um, True. Although the confirmation here. So, I mean, again, this is one of these things where I don't know if Trump realizes the problems he creates, which is, you know, the confirmation hearing on whoever he's is picked is going to be just fun as all get out. Well, it's so this, you know, gets us to kind of the interesting question about where we are now that Mm -hmm. on the one hand, the, 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 trio of announcements, you know, created a depth of panic among the sort of DC establishment that you really haven't seen since the very beginning. Right. Um, Since November 2016. Yeah. 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 And and so all the people who've sort of been saying all the way along, you know, this is okay, the grownups in the room. Um, it's all, you know, it's all worth it for the judges and the tax cuts. Um, this is the democratic process. Trump is a blip in the pan. There's a um some of it was this, the, the those people were sort of the ones creating a disturbance in the force um, around around here last night. So um, 
there's sort of two directions that that could go, I think. One is, and you saw um, a number of people sort of saying, oh, this is the beginning of the end. You know, this is what's going to push Republicans to support, you know, either removal for, for competence yeah. or impeachment. But the other way that that goes is, no, we just have to put someone in there that can manage things. And so I actually think you could see, and again, because the new Senate is more Republican, you could see a relatively easy confirmation process where, um, you know, Republicans ask questions like, you can walk taking one step at a time and you're familiar with the basic tenets of how the military works, right? And Democrats try to ask really hostile questions and get facts out there, but it's just perceived as totally partisan. So, you know, maybe this is, it would be great if this were a turning point. You know, the, the other point being there are five cabinet vacancies right now. God, are we at five? Um, well, yeah. It was yeah. Attorney General, Interior, Attorney. DOD. UN and EPA. Oh, that's right. Although UN will probably no longer be a cabinet agency, but point taken. Right. right. So, so I, I'm not, I, I'm not sure that you see a really, um, and oh, and another sort of thing that people probably missed because there was so much else going on. But um, Lindsey Graham is getting off Senate Armed Services. Oh. Um, and um, the um, so you'll have new, more junior senators, not necessarily senators who are big critics of the president. So you, you might be, one might be surprised about a confirmation hearing is, is all I'm No, that's certainly a fair point. Um, we should step back for a second. Speaking of which, of, of the five uh, cabinet officials, you wanted to talk about more than Mattis today. Um, so the other things that happened, I believe this week, I, I, honestly, I can't remember. <laughs> Right. So um, we've mentioned withdrawals, troop withdrawals from Syria and Afghanistan. And I, I can't stress enough that whether you are somebody who thinks we should be doing a lot more in those places or whether you are somebody who thinks we shouldn't be doing anything, it's total freaking incompetence and appalling. So, number one, we didn't warn the European, we didn't warn the Russians. You know, Putin went out for his year-end news conference yesterday and he said, well, about this withdrawal, I don't know. You know, the Americans say they're withdrawing from Afghanistan every other year. And, <laughs> you know, she, I mean, like, check, he owned us. Yeah. Um, nobody knew this was coming. There are, there's one, just one town where there are 50,000 internal refugees living under protection of the U.S. troops that are there. 50,000 people that we just were like, eh. so if you're a person who thinks that there should be fewer troops in Syria because killing people is bad, you kind of got to think to yourself, well, does this really result in less killing of people? So it's just appalling, appalling, appalling. And I don't, I don't care what your, what your position is on it. So wanted to say that the <laughs> other, we mentioned the treasury, um, announcement of a plan to de-sanction um, three oh. Russian companies that were controlled by a particular oligarch, but not just any oligarch, the one that used to be really close to Paul Manafort. Um, and so although he's not supposed to be in control of any of the companies anymore, he still gets to own 45% of them. And then his ex-in-laws own 7% of them. And the foundation that he founded gets to own another. So people looked at this and said, eh, not really sure what to think about this. And I believe they're all going to be in Davos at the same time. <laughs> 
I'm not kidding. I believe that Derek Scott is going to be there at the same time that, that you know, that Trump is bringing. That's the other weird thing that, you know, happened this week is um, uh, during Sarah Sanders press conference. I mean, I believe something like six or seven Trump administration cabinet, the, the remaining cabinet. Actually, I wonder if Mattis was in that group. But like, you know, six or seven of them are heading over to Davos uh, next month. I had totally missed that, Dan. Thank you. Yes, yes. Um, just as I had, I mean, I, I, this is where I start get you, you, this is where you do start getting more conspiracy minded in terms of why the hell are you lifting these sanctions? And more importantly, you know, for a president who supposedly believes in using leverage on anything, what leverage was, what, what did he get from this? Um, if this decision was made and I, I don't know. You are reminding me just while we're reviewing other things that happened this week that people should be really concerned about. Um, that crazy story that the Treasury Department, I believe it was, going back to 2016, yeah. appears to have been um, penetrated by Russian agents that were seeking confidential data on a range of American nonprofits, mm. including Jewish organizations that I looked at and I didn't immediately understand what Moscow wanted there, but just a very, and, and, you know, this is not, this is not one you can blame on Trump, but just. To right. Let's, we should be clear about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, this is, this is a story. Um, this is a story, frankly, of dysfunction in, in the treasury department where th there appear to be multiple things going on. The first is, is that a policy office in the, uh, in the office of terrorism and, and terrorist financing, uh, essentially got played by the Russians uh, trying to engage in cooperation to shut down ISIS, but wound up agreeing to do things like use, you know, Gmail or, you know, Hotmail accounts to to correspond with the Russians, which makes no frigging sense to me whatsoever. And as, as someone who used to work at Treasury, that would like, e even 15 years ago, that would have like sent up flares on, in terms of uh, why would I want to do that? Um but then related to this is the notion that FinCEN, which is our uh, the U.S. Financial Intelligence Unit, which is supposed to do things like combat money laundering and help combat terrorist financing and help, uh, you know, uh, to some extent in the ability to, to engage in targeted sanctions. Um, that unit seems to be falling apart slightly uh, under uh, leadership, which, again, appointed prior to, I believe, Trump coming into office or maybe, you know, just when he started. But I, I don't want to put this on. Mnuchin and Trump, it seems like there were problems going in, but they have certainly festered since then um, to the point where uh, the there was a an attack in London, the terrorist attack in in um, in London when there was a drive. I think there was a the, uh, the drive park. near Parliament. Yeah, right. That, that FinCEN immediately dashed in to try to to get access to records to see if they could figure out who the heck this was and found that they were locked out. Uh, because a rival office had somehow, you know, locked them out of of this sort of database. So this is, you know, in some ways, this is the perfect storm of simultaneously um, the deep state sort of, you know, going slightly awry. And yet, of course, the Trump administration not being able to manage any of this. So it's just festering and getting worse. Yeah. So I want to I want to come back to this theme about institutional weakness sort of at the very end where we ask if we learned anything from this year. Um <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that while you were drinking. That's okay. <laughs> but um, just a couple of other sort of little news blips from the week that would have been huge stories in any normal cycle. But I believe the some steps forward were taken on setting up an alternate payment clearance center in Switzerland for Europeans to to for their work around the Iran sanctions. Did I did I 
somewhere in the okay. big back of my mind. Did I see that? So I'm going to come clean here and say that all I've been doing this week is grading um, when not paying attention to, you know, the the Trump stuff. So I will need to look at this. Um, if that happened, it's not good, uh, at least from the, the U.S. perspective of, uh, you know, preserving the, the dollar as the uh, – uh, the global reserve currency. And th- nonetheless, this is, by the way, something I warned would happen, I believe, last month. <laughs> <laughs> if it happened, I warned it would happen. If it happened, I said so. If it didn't, well, you know, I at least I was prudent and cautious. <laughs> the other thing that happened uh, yesterday while we were all kind of freaking out and otherwise occupied, but I believe that the North Koreans made explicit something that was totally clear if you had been paying any attention, but nonetheless, it was helpful of them to make explicit, which was they're not denuclearizing unless we go first. Yes, uh, which, you know, is a, is a polite way of saying that whatever you thought was agreed to in Singapore, and it was not obvious that anything had actually practically been agreed on, uh, it, it's now dissolved. Um, and this, by the way, brings us back to the sort of personnel thing, which is uh, the degree to which, you know, I... I Someone on Twitter, I think, referred to Mike Pompeo as not the Secretary of State, but rather the Secretary of Iran and North Korea. I think it might have been Tom Wright who said this, um, our colleague at Brookings. And, you know, it is safe to say that neither of those, you know, portfolios is going terribly well at the moment um, in the sense that if you're an Iran hawk, getting U.S. troops out of Syria does not strike me as your immediate preferred go-to move. Um, I'm going to stop you there because we're going to be even a little more specific. And um, this um, just refused to refer to some some people, Dan, that you and I both know personally. But um, the senior Iran team at the State Department indeed has spent all of recent weeks going around Washington, explaining its strategy to step up its its game against Iran in Syria. Literally, that was a core plank of what the State Department's Iran Iran strike force Iran task force. <laughs> they'll they'll probably was, they'll they'll rename it strike force now. You realize that it was doing and yeah. and so of of the people, you know, sort of Matt Mattis went out on a pyre of glory, but there are several, you know, the the senior state Iran envoys, the senior yeah. state Syria envoys who who are um, limping around Washington with bad burns right now. Let's just say, but I cut you off before you mentioned North Korea, which is also, as you say, glorious. right. But in some ways, North Korea is exactly is playing out exactly as you said. And so, you know, one wonders exactly what uh, Mike Pompeo is is. Uh, in some ways, I, I think Mattis's choice to step down mm-hmm. is interesting because Pompeo has clearly made a different choice, despite the fact that on Iran, you know, he's at least gotten partially rolled. Um, and, you know, I know for a fact that, that let's just say the North Korean negotiations are not going. Um, he, he, he stuck his neck out a fair amount to sort of try to implement Trump's, you know, vision on this. And I would say that's not going out, you know, going terribly well either. And to be fair, that's not entirely Pompeo's fault. I don't mean to suggest that, like, if he had been a better diplomat, he somehow could have pulled this off. But that's not going to carry any water with Trump either. And I'm sure Trump is going to be displeased with him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. This may be the point where we start transitioning into trying to make sense of the year, um, unless there's anything else that's happened in the last week that I've forgotten. But, um, you know, one of the when I I had to write about Mattis very quickly last night for New York magazine. And one of the things that I think all of these guys kind of misunderestimated um, was the idea that you can that you can serve Trump and not be changed by him. And, you know, I mean, Pompeo, who is a difficult personality, who I don't have a lot of sympathy for, but 
he did, he actually, they did a really good job of pulling together a way to save the Iran deal. And then, I mean, and then Trump cut their legs out, out from under them. And Pompeo is continually humiliated by the North Koreans who seem to take particular delight in putting in him in these appalling circumstances that he would never stand for otherwise. Right. No, and, I, I, just to interrupt, I have to, uh, one of the more fascinating aspects of this, and I confess this is schadenfreude and I should probably not feel like this, but is watching people like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo serving this president doing things that if it was any other president, they would be on Fox News kicking and screaming about the fact that it's being done. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so kind of my first takeaway from the year is you don't change Trump, Trump changes you. And as fun as it is to have schadenfreude about the people around him, that goes for, it goes for all of us too. Um, you know, and it goes for our institutions. And so I kind of end the year, you know, feeling, I mean, as, as worried as I ever have, but also really wanting to keep pointing out to people that the problem is not just Trump the individual, it's also institutions that were weak or neglected yeah. or past their prime. And, you know, I'm really, one thing I'm hopeful of about the last few days is that our many friends who like to say, and I have to say I heard this at Christmas parties around town earlier in the week, oh, Trump is a blip, he's a flash in the pan, he's one guy, we can fix all of this afterwards. Problem is much deeper than that, and if you hadn't understood that before, you really need to understand it now. Yeah, so I don't, you know, if, if I were to take back and think about 2018, I, you know, in, in terms of foreign policy, or even just the Trump administration more generally, I, I found that I proceed on two tracks. You know, one track is just to be appalled by, you know, what's actually being done in some cases, where you know, whether it's immigration or trade um, or a variety of other measures, where I don't think. You know, the, the North Korea outreach that happened. The summit happened this year. Right. I'm not crazy on that. Yeah, it did happen this year, earlier this year, um, where even the things that looked kind of OK or like you could have you could have had a positive spin on it at the outset, you know, now look pretty bad um, and, and and it's pretty appalling. And then there's the second track where I can't stop laughing Um because there's a degree to which this is is almost comical. And this might be where uh, maybe I'm a little different from you on this, which is I have a little more faith in the robustness of these institutions um, going forward. And it's not that I agree with you that they've been, that, you know, congressional oversight over foreign policy has been eroded, you know, has eroded very badly. And again, this has nothing to do with Trump. This preceded Trump. Um, but But there are ways in which I would argue that, that Trump has almost forced antibodies to emerge um, in places that would would not necessarily that would uh, where they otherwise would have been dormant, um, where you even have people like, let's say, Chuck Grassley suggesting, you know what, I think we need to consider whether or not these national security um, exemptions that Trump has used to impose tariffs will necessarily be the, the brightest idea. Um, and the fact that the, you know, the, the the courts and so on and so forth are also, you know, putting at least some limits on the presidency, in no small part because Trump is has is constantly pushing those limits. So in some ways, there was almost guaranteed to be pushback. The part where I am concerned about is the part where he has fewer, you know, uh, checks and balances, which is is his control of the executive branch, um, and the degree to which the damage he is doing both to the sort of foreign policy slash national security bureaucracy. Um, is going to be more lasting. And I, th you know, in the sense of, 
you know, people leaving the State Department in droves and people probably now, you know, going to be leaving the Defense Department uh, in droves following Mattis's departure. And, you know, those are those are skilled people that you can't hire back um, because, you know, that, that they're they're not going to come back. And so it, it's it's a loss of of expertise that I find disconcerting. And I think the other way I, I think the more disturbing thing is, you know, Presidents very often get frustrated about the fact that they have to deal with or or clean up the messes of their predecessors. You know, Obama didn't want to deal with Iraq when he came in. Um, you know, the the or Afghanistan when he came in as well. But he obviously had to deal with those things because Bush, by invading, you know, created the problem for his predecessors. Um, and Trump is in you know in many ways the same way in terms of you know a whole variety of policies, not just in you know Afghanistan and Syria, but also things like. You know, think about this first call with uh, the prime minister of Australia where he realized he had to take migrants and, you know, and so on and so forth. Trump is now actually creating a legacy that his predecessors, that his successors are going to have to deal with. Sorry, I think I said predecessors when I meant successors before. Um, but he's going to have to deal with – he's creating a problem that his successors are going to have a problem coping with, which is essentially what is the value of U.S. credible commitments? Or rather, what is the value of U.S. commitments and are they still credible? Um because Trump, in many ways, is not violating the law by pulling out of the Paris Climate Change Accords or by pulling U.S. forces out of Syria or what have you. You know, he's fully within his rights as president of the United States, um, even withdrawing from the Universal Postal Union. You know, most international agreements have exit um, clauses. We just haven't really thought about them until this president. And so my concern is that even in a post-Trump world, will anyone believe if the United States signs something that we will actually stick to it? Well, I was going to say something perhaps similar, um, which is that antibodies are great for destruction. Uh, and antibodies are not designed for building or renting yeah. things. So I do think, I think that's a great image. I think 2019 is going to be the year of the antibody. But I think that is likely to bring with it more um, destruction than than reconstruction. And I'm sorry to viewers that the, the, the ghost of Christmas future is calling me on my other line. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's my, that's my prediction for 2019 and in straining to end on a positive note. Um, I'm trying to think about how many days it is to pitchers and catchers. Um, oh God, it's gotta be uh, probably 60 or like a little more than 60. God, that's a long time. I'm sorry. Um, Within which we also have to, um, you know, see what happens to the successor agreement to NAFTA, get mm -hmm. through a budget process, a State of the Union, a NATO ministerial um, successors for Mattis and um, um, Nikki Haley. What else have we got coming up in the first 60 days of the new year? Uh, there's the Davos, there's the World Economic Forum. Davos, right. Um, there'll be the Munich Security Conference. Uh, uh, creation of Bolsonaro in Brazil. Yes. Um, and wait, has AMLO been he though that happened yeah. December 1st? Yes, he's AMLO's already been put in um, the possible, you know, uh, further protests in France and uh, Hungary and oh, Brexit. Yeah, that that how could we have forgotten that? Right. And by the way, the fact I the fact that Theresa would who the hell would have predicted a year ago that Theresa May would outlast Jim Mattis? So, man, I'm just that's my other lesson of 2018, man. It is good to be underestimated. I suppose so. Um, so and with that, you guys are going to want you're going to need us in 2019. Come back and see us. I like your positivity that we're going to be around to talk about it. So that's good. <laughs> oh, no, we're not. Um, we're not going to be released from this any any time too soon. <laughs>
<laughs> and to close, this is the bad place. Yes. Happy, happy new year, Blocking Heads viewers. And thank you for your patience with our sort of rare and peripatetic appearances. But um, this was so much fun. We'll definitely do it again soon. Yes. And have a good year, Heather. Thanks. You too, Dan. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.